Welcome to the Cornerstone Baptist Church podcast. My name is Justin Wheeler. I am the preaching pastor for Cornerstone Baptist Church in Wiley, Texas. I'm glad you've joined today. Now, we're still in the midst of what's going on in our world and in our community, in our nation with COVID-19, this coronavirus and the lockdown and the quarantine. We're beginning to see some of those restrictions uh, and some of those quarantine recommendations lifted, which is exciting, but people are still getting sick. People are still dying. This is still an issue that we're facing as a people. We're still asking the questions, what is God doing in the midst of all of this? Just the other day, I was listening to a uh, a podcast from a celebrity, and, and in that podcast, he was talking about um, God's role in this coronavirus outbreak. And this is a young man who professes to be a Christian, a follower of Christ. And and in that discussion, he he mentioned, and he's pretty adamant about it, that that this was not that God had no part in this. That God was not doing anything with coronavirus, because God only sends good things. Now, I appreciate the sentiment. It is a wonderful truth that God does send good things. In fact, all good things come down from the Father of lights, come down to us from our Father above. But to suggest that that the, uh, the difficult things that go on in life, that God has no part in them or that God did not send them as a messenger, to suggest that periods of judgment are not part of God's process of accomplishing His purpose in the world is just not a very well-balanced understanding of God, at least not the God of Scripture. Well, thankfully, uh, as we read our Bible, we come to understand that God does use all different kinds of means to turn the hearts of people toward Him. And one of those means is, in fact, periods of judgment. And we're not the only ones who know this. We're not the only ones who have understood this. In fact, some of our brothers and sisters from days gone by knew this even better than we. And so today on the podcast, Breck Wheelock is back, and Breck is going to be sharing with us um, a, a sermon from Charles Spurgeon. And what Spurgeon was dealing with in this sermon was he was dealing with a, an outbreak of cholera in his own day and in his own city. And he responded to that by helping us understand the role that God plays in the midst of such calamity and how we should respond to that. So without further ado, I'll turn it over to Breck. Hello out there. My name is Breck Wheelock, and I would like to welcome you to another episode in which we will be looking to Scripture to help us navigate through this time of coronavirus crisis. Our text for today's episode comes from the book of Amos, specifically chapter 3, verses 3 through 6. And as we did a couple of lessons ago, we will be considering the expositional insights of Charles Spurgeon regarding this passage. Spurgeon chose to preach on this particular text because of a severe outbreak of cholera that was occurring in London at the time. He titled his sermon, The Voice of the Cholera, sermon number 705, and it was preached from the Metropolitan Tabernacle Pulpit in London on August 12th of 1866. I have selected and edited only those portions of the sermon which I felt best suited the purposes of this podcast, and I have modified some of Spurgeon's language to make it more understandable to our modern ears. In altering the text, I did my best to maintain the integrity and the intent of Spurgeon's thoughts. If you would like to read the original sermon in its entirety, it is readily available online. In fact, you can even listen to the original sermon being read on YouTube. 
Now, the primary lesson that we will be pondering in this episode is this. When God judges a nation, it is not without a purpose, and he will not remove the judgment until its full purpose has been accomplished. With that, let us begin by reading from chapter 3 of Amos. Though Spurgeon will only be focusing on verses 3 through 6, I will read verses 1 through 6 just to give us a bit more context. And so here we go. Amos chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, and I'm reading from the New King James Version. Hear this word that the Lord has spoken against you, O children of Israel, against the whole family which I brought up from the land of Egypt, saying, You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all of your iniquities. Can two walk together unless they are agreed? Will a lion roar in the forest when he has no prey? Will a young lion cry out of his den if he has caught nothing? Will a bird fall into a snare on the earth where there is no trap for it? Will a snare spring up from the earth if it has caught nothing at all? If a trumpet is blown in a city, will not the people be afraid? If there is calamity in a city, will not the Lord have done it? Spurgeon begins his sermon with the following introductory remarks. We have all been grieved by the mortality that has been caused by the mysterious spread of cholera in our great city of London. Thus, I shall speak boldly as to the theological aspect of the subject. As Christians, we believe that God sends all pestilences and that he sends them with a purpose. Therefore, as a minister of God, it is my business to call the people's attention to God in this time of disease and to teach them the lessons which God would have them to learn. To begin, I do not believe that every affliction is a judgment upon each and every individual person to whom it occurs. We see that in this world, the best of men often endure a great deal of suffering, and that the worst of men frequently have very little suffering. Let's pause for a moment here, because this is a very important distinction that Spurgeon is making. When God sends a widespread judgment, such as a famine or a plague or a war, these types of judgments are not directed at individuals. They are directed at nations. Spurgeon is going to elaborate on this point in the next few sentences. Moreover, it is critical that we understand, as God's people, that when we have to go through a national judgment, such as the one that we are currently enduring vis-a-vis -vis the coronavirus, God is not punishing us. Christ has already suffered the punishment for his people's sins. He paid the debt of our sins in full. There is no remaining balance. The slate is completely clean for God's elect. However, that being said, God will still occasionally judge his people in the sense of disciplining and chastising them as a father disciplines or chastises his children. Continuing, Spurgeon says, Though we do not believe that every affliction is a judgment upon each and every individual person to whom it occurs, we do, however, very firmly believe that there are national judgments and that national sins provoke national chastisements. As to individuals, their punishment or reward is reserved for the great white throne judgment of Christ. But nations will not exist in the next world. There is no such thing as a judgment of nations as such at the last great day. 
that will be the judgment of individuals one by one. The trial and punishment of nations takes place only in this present world, and it is here that we are to look for the judgment of God upon national sin. In light of this, I shall speak to you today regarding the national chastisement that God is presently visiting upon England. This is an excellent point that Spurgeon makes, and we don't want to miss it because it's the foundation which he is going to build upon throughout the remainder of this sermon. His point here is that there will not be any nations, plural, in the next life. There will only be one kingdom, one nation, singular. That nation is going to be the true Israel of God. And furthermore, this heavenly nation, this true Israel of God, will be completely pure. No sin, no curse, no death, no sorrow, no pain, no trials or afflictions or tribulations. In short, there will be no judgments upon this heavenly nation because there will be no need. Sin will have been completely vanquished, and all things will have been reconciled by the blood of Christ. But in this life, there are many nations, and on this side of heaven, God will frequently visit and judge a nation according to its wickedness. During such times of national judgment, God's people are not immune. For them, the judgment is meant as a chastisement, as we already noted. With this foundational principle in mind, let us commence with Spurgeon's verse-by-verse -verse exposition of the passage, beginning with verse 3. The first question that Amos asks, says Spurgeon, is this. Can two walk together, except they be agreed? In other words, can God continue to walk with a sinful people? Is it not to be expected that when a nation falls out with God, God will no longer continue to bless it? In this metaphor given by Amos, two travelers have been cordially walking together for some time when suddenly they fall to angry words, and after a while one strikes the other and mistreats him. Are we to think that the one attacked, in this case God, will continue to walk with the one who maliciously assaulted him, in this case the nation of Israel? No, they must part company. Now, when God walks with a nation, that nation prospers. But if that nation falls to words with God, and quarrels with him about his will and his law, and rushes perversely into sinful ways, indeed, if there be some in that nation who would have no God at all, who do their best to stamp out or destroy or eradicate his very name from the earth, which he himself has made, then we cannot expect that God should continue to walk with such offenders. Brethren, let me ask you soberly, has there not been enough wickedness in England, and especially here in London, to make God angry with us? Has there not been serious disagreement between the dwellers in this city and God? Has there not been enough to make him say, I will not walk with this people any longer. I will greatly chasten them and send heavy judgments upon them. Let's stop here for a moment to reflect upon these poignant questions that are being asked by Spurgeon. Consider our own nation. Has our nation fallen to words with God? Has our nation quarreled with him about his will and his law? Have we removed prayer from our schools? Have we removed the Ten Commandments from our courthouses? Have we rushed perversely into sinful ways? Are there many in our nation who would have no God at all, who do their best to stamp out or destroy or eradicate his very name from the earth, 
Has there not been enough disagreement between the people of our nation and God to make him say, I will walk no more with this people. I will chasten them and send heavy judgments of disease and economic devastation upon them. These are sobering questions. Questions that we really don't want to address. Questions that make us very uncomfortable. But maybe that's the point. Maybe we've become too comfortable. Maybe God has sent this judgment precisely to make all of us extremely uncomfortable. Certainly God would have the unbelievers of our nation to be uncomfortable, to stop them from carrying on in their wickedness, if but only for a season, and to cause them, perhaps, to consider heavenly things and to forsake their wicked ways. But what about us, as believers? Would God send this judgment to make us uncomfortable too? Well, the wickedness that we now see coursing throughout our nation didn't happen overnight, and it didn't occur in a vacuum. Are there not many who profess Christ in America? How then have so many evil atrocities overtaken our land? Have we who profess Christ become complacent? Have we become apathetic? Have we become desensitized to the sins of our nation? Have we been negligent in civic affairs? Have we failed to cast our vote? Have we declined to speak up when we had the opportunity? Sins of omission. Have we ourselves, from time to time, sat at the table of the world and joined in the revelry of Babylon? Sins of commission. Have we made no contribution in God's anger toward our nation? Brethren, each of us would do well to contemplate these questions and in deep humility to ask the Holy Spirit to reveal to us those ways in which we may have provoked the Lord to judge our country. This is precisely what Spurgeon would urge his own congregation to do. He goes on to list several of the sins of England that, in his opinion, would be more than enough reason for God to visit London with his judgment of cholera. Spurgeon says that the rampant drunkenness of England is enough to provoke God to smite it with all his thunderbolts. Moreover, there can be no doubt that amongst all classes and ranks of men, there is enough debauchery and lewdness to bring down heaven's wrath upon our city. The sins of the flesh are sure to be visited before long by that God who loathes iniquity and in whose nostrils fornication is a stench. He will not forever endure this abounding sin, for it is committed, be it remembered, in a country famous above all others for its love of home and its high esteem of the joys which cluster around family life. So long as this continues, we need not wonder if God's health-giving providence should refuse to walk with us, for he cannot be agreed with a people who choose the way of unrighteousness. Note the specific sins that Spurgeon has here enumerated. Rampant drunkenness, along with general debauchery, lewdness, and flagrant and prolific fornication, which inevitably leads to the degradation of the purity of family life. Do we not see the same depravity occurring within our own country? Indeed, even more so. Surely the drunkenness of London in 1866 pales in comparison to the drug abuse that now infests every one of our major cities, and which has infiltrated even the most remote small towns and main streets of America. And what shall we say about the degradation of the purity of family life 
that results from general debauchery and lewdness and fornication? Could Spurgeon have even conceived of a society that would actively promote and celebrate homosexual, transgender, and polyamorous relationships? A society that would redefine marriage itself and legalize the marriage of same-sex couples? Could he imagine a civilization that would murder over half a million of its unborn children every single year? Thus, we must conclude with Spurgeon that so long as these evils continue, we need not wonder if God's health-giving providence should refuse to walk with us, for he cannot be agreed with a people who choose the way of unrighteousness. Now, to be clear, I'm not saying that we, as God's people, are the ones who have brought this judgment of coronavirus upon our nation. No, I'm not saying that. What I am saying is that, as God's people, we need to be willing to search ourselves to see if there be any unclean thing in us that may have acted as kindle or spark in igniting the fiery anger of God's judgment. Brethren, this is what I've been trying to do. I've been trying to ask those hard questions. Have I contributed in any way to the degradation of the purity of family life? For those of you who might not know, I work in surgery and my work takes me to many different hospitals throughout the Dallas Metroplex. Over the last several weeks, I've overheard many conversations among doctors and nurses in which they're complaining about the stress and the strain of having to participate in educating their kids because the schools are closed. What is really being communicated quite clearly from these types of conversations is that children are really just a gigantic burden. And at least for these parents, they're really not interested in doing the hard work of teaching and disciplining their children. They would rather leave that job to others. In other words, they're just not really interested in being parents. And to my shame, I often don't speak up. These are missed opportunities where I could have tried to elevate the purity of family life. But I didn't. And I've been convicted of this, and I've had to repent. To give another personal anecdote, there's a surgeon I often work with, and he's quite passionate about protecting unborn life. He openly talks about the heinousness of abortion with those who are in the operating room while he's working. He also frequently speaks out against the LGBTQ agenda and the devastating effects that their agenda is having on the home. Now, it's important that we exercise a good deal of discernment in the conversations that we have at our workplace. But that being said, I greatly admire this surgeon's boldness to speak truth, and it has challenged me to be more active in seeking out those opportunities when appropriate. Moreover, since my work has been greatly reduced over the last several weeks, I've had a lot more time at home with my wife and kids, and I've been trying to make the best use of this time. I've been trying to re-establish things that I've somewhat been neglecting. For example, getting back into the habit of having regular and consistent worship time with the kids, going over catechism questions with them, and helping them to memorize Bible verses. Husbands, fathers, are you shepherding your family as you have been commanded to do? Are you washing your wife with the word? Parents, are you pouring yourselves into your children? Are you diligently striving to raise your children in the fear and admonition of the Lord? If we fail to do these things, should we be surprised that the world around us has such a low opinion of family life? Before we return to Spurgeon, allow me to make one more comment here. When it comes to engaging the culture and speaking out against the sins of our nation, our church, Cornerstone Baptist, does much that is to be commended. 
Just recently, the leadership of our church encouraged us to take part in the 40 Days for Life campaign, whose purpose is to help people in local communities end the injustice of abortion through prayer and fasting, community outreach, and peaceful vigil. In addition to this, Justin dedicates a sermon every year to the subject of abortion and the sanctity of life, and he also speaks out from time to time against the LGBTQ agenda. Furthermore, I know that many of you are shepherding your families well, and that you frequently engage with your neighbors, co-workers, friends, and extended family members so as to be a faithful witness to Christ. We even have a deacon who works for a law firm that is dedicated to defending our religious freedoms. There is much to be applauded when it comes to the leadership and to the faithfulness of the people here at Cornerstone, and to the extent that we remain faithful in doing what God has called us to do with regard to our families, our church, and our nation. We are innocent of any national judgments that may befall us. Continuing on, Spurgeon gives another example of a great national sin that would provoke God to send the judgment of cholera upon England. He says, Brethren, if there be any one thing which yet provokes God above all of this, it is the fact that we have once again, as a nation, permitted Roman Catholicism to claim to be our national religion. In our established Protestant church, the gospel is no longer dominant. We no longer have any right to speak of our national Protestant church. It is not Protestant, for it tolerates all the heresies of Rome. Not many streets from the church in which we are assembled, you may have your candles and your incense, along with all other pomps and vanities of the detestable idolatry of Rome. That Romanism against which many bore testimony and thus burned at the stake as martyrs to the truth. That monster, that old wolf, that tore out the palpating hearts of your forefathers, you have suffered to come back into your house, and you are cherishing it and feeding it with your children's meat. Once again, the harlot of Babylon flaunts her lasciviousness in our faces almost without rebuke. It is the same spirit of Antichrist with which your fathers wrestled, and yet our country bears it and even rejoices in it. Is it for nothing that God has favored this land with the gospel? Must all her light be turned to darkness? Must all the gains of the valiant men of old be lost by the laziness and cowardice of this thoughtless generation? In days past, men like John Knox, Hugh Latimer, and John Bradford fought like lions for the truth, and are we to yield like cowards? Are the men of oak succeeded by the men of weeping willows? The men who cried, No Romanism here, now sleep within their tombs, and their descendants wear the yoke which their fathers scorned. Shall not God visit us for this? We must remember the context here. Spurgeon is speaking of his own nation, England, and the year is 1866. Without getting into the rich Protestant history of Great Britain, suffice to say, much blood had been shed over the centuries to free the English people from the tyrannies of the Roman Catholic Church. In light of this, Spurgeon is quite beside himself that the Protestant Church of England was losing all the ground that it had gained, and at so great a price, to the idolatry of Rome. For Spurgeon, this national sin of failing to protect the true gospel and failing to protect England's godly heritage that had been passed down to them by the blood of martyrs was the most provocative sin of all and demanded that God come down to judge England with plague and pestilence. Once again, consider our own national roots. Those who first came to the shores of America were by and large seeking religious freedom, whereby they could pursue holiness without fear of persecution by tyrant kings. 
As a result, our government and legal system was ultimately established upon Judeo-Christian values, as was our original education system. Of the first 100 colleges and universities in America, only a handful were not established by Christian denominations or by individuals who declared a religious purpose. This is our American heritage. But where are we now? Do our government officials fear God? Do our judges uphold justice? Do our public schools teach our children to meditate upon and delight in the law of the Lord? Or do our public schools teach our children to hate God and to meditate upon and delight in whatever is right in their own eyes? We have not succumbed to the idolatry of Romanism. We have succumbed to the idolatry of humanism. We have not merely allowed a perversion of the gospel to take hold in our society. We have allowed a hatred of the gospel to take hold in our society. Which is worse, a nation that will tolerate a perversion of the gospel, or a nation that will tolerate no gospel at all? If the England of Spurgeon's day was worthy of national judgment, how much more is our own nation worthy? We must again agree with Spurgeon's assessment. Can two walk together, except they be agreed? Rampant drunkenness, debauchery, fornication, failure of God's people to protect the purity of marriage and family, failure of God's people to protect their godly heritage, etc. These things are obviously contrary to the mind and will of God. Thus, we cannot wonder if there should be a plague upon our nation. Continuing on to verse 4, Spurgeon writes, The second question of the prophet is this, Will a lion roar in the forest when he has no prey? Will a young lion cry out of his den if he has taken nothing? Amos had observed that a lion does not roar without reason. By the use of this rhetorical question, he brings forward the second truth, that when God speaks, it is not without a cause, and especially when he speaks with a threatening voice. My brethren, our God is too gracious to send us this cholera without a motive. Are we to imagine that the Lord has done this for nothing, to accomplish no purpose? The great lion of vengeance has not roared unless sin has provoked him. Since I have already indicated our great national sins, I should like to ask those Christians who are present what role they may have played in these sins. You who profess to be people of God, and who recognize God's hand in this visitation with cholera, I ask you how far has justice found provocation in you? What have you to do, professing Christians, with the drunkenness of this city? Are you sure that you are quite clear of it? Have you, both by your teaching and by your example, shown to men that the religion of Jesus is not consistent with drunkenness. Oh, if you have been guilty, I pray you seek to be purged of this sin. You cannot wipe out all the national iniquity. But if each man reformed himself of this vice, by God's grace, this great evil would cease. Let each Christian look at home. Have you in any way fallen into lightness of talk and thought, and so helped to increase the flood of this evil? Oh, my brethren, who among us must not confess to some guilt? Let us bow our heads in penitence and seek to the God of all grace that he would not roar over this his prey, but be pleased to purge us from it that we may be clean in his presence. And as to this resurgent Romanism, have we spoken out about that? Or do we lend it our direct or even indirect support? God grant that if we have not repudiated it, we may do so. And holding the truth, may we come out of Babylon 
lest we be partakers of her plagues in the day when God shall visit her in his wrath. Such, I think, was what Amos indicated by his second question. Here is where we see Spurgeon urging his own congregation to look inwardly, to see what role they may have played in the national sins that he previously mentioned. As we have already observed, this is the proper response of God's people during a time of national judgment. We are to take inventory of our own lives and see if we have lent direct or indirect support to those sins which have given cause for the lion to roar over his prey. Moving on to verse 5, Spurgeon writes, The third question is this, Can a bird fall in a snare upon the earth where there is no trap for it? You see the bird in flight that suddenly swoops to the ground and is taken into the net. Amos is here directing us to the fact that the bird would not be taken into the net unless the net had been purposely designed and laid out in order to catch it. It is taken because the snare was meant to take it. And Amos means to remind us that men do not die without a design on God's part. It is the same thought as before, but it is held up in another light. The bird is not taken in the net without the design of the fowler. And men do not fall into the net of death without an intent on God's part. Death with all which it involves on earth and in eternity, is not sent by God without a reason. Forever banished from the Christian's conversation is the word chance. God rules and overrules all things, and he does nothing without a motive. The insatiable archer is not permitted to shoot his bolts at random. Every arrow that flies bears this inscription, I have a message from God for you. When God sends disease to walk through the streets at night, to stretch out his mighty but invisible hand, and take away a child, or a young man, and give over to the grave those who might have otherwise had a long life, do not for a moment think that the Lord has done so without some holy and wise purpose to have been accomplished by it. We must conclude that a purpose, consistent with the love and justice of God, lies hidden in this present harvest of death. Then follows a fourth question, shall one take up a snare from the earth and have taken nothing at all? In other words, the fowler does not remove the net until he has caught his bird. Thus, this fourth question implies that God has a purpose in sending tribulation, and we should expect that he will not remove the tribulation that he has sent until its full purpose has been accomplished. Whatever God has to say to London, if he be heard at once... He need not speak again. But if he is not heard the first time, there shall come a second voice, and yet another. The fowler doesn't take away his net unless a bird has been caught by it. And God takes not away the trouble which he sends unless it has fulfilled the design for which it was sent. If you ask me what I think would be his design in sending us cholera, I believe it to be this, to wake up our indifferent population to make them remember that there is a God, to make them more receptive to the influences of the gospel, to drive them to church, to prepare their minds to receive the word, and, moreover, to startle Christians into energy and earnestness that they may work while it is still called today. My reason for selecting this subject at all was so that I might be a useful instrument in the hands of the Holy Spirit to aid in this great design. Brothers and sisters, you are acquainted with history, and you have reason to bless God, that as he has turned the pages of history, we have been spared many of those dreadful calamities which have occurred in this and other lands. 
Who can read the story of the plague of London without a shudder? Who has read of famines in this land without gratitude for the abundance of bread? Who can turn to the descriptions of past bloody wars without thankfulness that we live in better days? But it is much to be feared that a constant run of prosperity, perpetual peace and freedom from disease, may breed in our minds just what it has done in all human minds before, namely, security and pride, heathenism, and forgetfulness of God. It is a most solemn fact that human nature can scarcely bear a long continuance of peace and health. It is almost necessary that we should be every now and then salted with affliction, lest we putrefy with sin. Let's briefly stop to elaborate upon this point. Spurgeon states that a constant run of prosperity, perpetual peace, and freedom from disease will inevitably lead to a false sense of security, pride, heathenism, and forgetfulness of God. This is exactly what has happened to our nation. And for this reason, though I want this judgment to end, and I do, I pray that God would not remove his net until he has caught his bird. God has used COVID-19 to overthrow our high places, to topple over many of our idols. How many in our nation have made an idol of sports and entertainment? How many have made an idol of material wealth? How many are addicted to ease and creaturely comforts and a life of indulgence, extravagance, and affluence? In so many ways, God has used COVID-19 to topple over our nation's idols. But if after this judgment is removed, we immediately rush back to those high places and raise up those idols that the Lord toppled over so that we might worship them once again, then this judgment will only have been a foreshock of a more violent quaking, an even greater judgment, which will most assuredly come. God forbid that we should escape this judgment with our tail between our legs, only to return straight away to our vomit, licking our lusts and lapping up the empty luxuries of this fallen world. We would hope that this mild rebuke would be enough to teach us to heed the words of the preacher, that without the fear of the Lord, all is vanity. To quote Ezekiel Hopkins, What is gold and silver but diversified earth, and hard and shining clay? The richest perfumes are but the clammy sweat of trees. The softest silks are but the excrement of a vile worm. The most expensive wines are nothing but puddle water strained through a vine. Our choicest delicacies are but dirt cooked and served up to us. The truth is, the world is much better in show than in substance. How vain is the world at the hour of death! Nor can these earthly pleasures free us from our cares and crosses. In God alone can be found true rest and satisfaction. Let us then turn the stream of our desires away from earth to heaven, for there alone can we find permanent and lasting satisfaction. Let us walk humbly with our God. Amen. Great quote. Let this judgment of COVID-19 be used to wean us all from the world, to remind us all to walk humbly with our God. Our prayer should be that the Lord's will would be done, that the great fowler would not gather up his net until he catch his fowl, that COVID-19 would not be removed until it has accomplished all the purposes for which it has been sent, that it would continue on its purifying path until we have all thoroughly learned its lesson. Lord, 
Let us hear the voice of the preacher that you have sent to us. Let us hear the voice of COVID-19. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is man's all. For God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verses 13 and 14. Finally, regarding verse 6 of Amos chapter 3, Spurgeon offers the following comments. Thus far we have seen that it is no wonder if disease should come. We have learned that it does not come without a cause. We have seen that when it does come, there is a design, and that it will not be removed unless that design be answered. And now we are prepared to take the further step, raised by the fifth question, namely, that an awakening should be the result. Shall the trumpet be blown in the city, and the people not be afraid? During war in ancient times, there were men stationed upon watchtowers, and when they saw the enemy coming, the trumpet was sounded, and the people rushed to arms. The sound of a trumpet was the warning of war. This cholera is like the sound of a trumpet. Pestilence is a trumpet which must be heard. Its echoes reach every citizen within the boundaries of a nation, in the darkest cellar, in the most crowded haunt or vice, and in the palaces of kings, in the halls of the rich and great, the sound finds an entrance, and the cry is raised, the death plague is come, the cholera is among us. All men are compelled to hear the trumpet voice, if only they would heed its message. If only all of us would be aroused to search our own hearts, and above all, would fly to Christ Jesus, the great sacrifice for sin, and find in him a rescue from the greater plague, the wrath to come. The great end and design of God, then, it seems, is to arouse the city, and that arousing should follow from the fact declared in the last question, Shall there be calamity in a city, and the Lord has not done it? Shall there be cholera in this great city of London, and God has not done it? My soul cowered under the majesty of that question as I read it. It seemed to stretch its black wings over my head, and had I not known them to be the wings of God, I would have been afraid. The text talked with me in this fashion. It is not the cholera which has slain these hundreds. The cholera is but the sword. The hand that directs and wields this sword of cholera is the true master of death. God himself is traversing London. God, the great judge of all, at whose belt swing the keys of death and hell, the mysterious one whose voice made the stars and can quench them at his will. It was none other than he who walked down our crowded courts, and entering our lanes and alleys called one after another the souls of men to their last account. God is abroad. God has come down and is going through this city. Tread solemnly when you go to your business tomorrow morning, when you walk the streets where God has walked. The last time this disease was here, I had a pervading sense of the presence of God wherever I went. It seemed to me as if the veil between time and eternity were more transparent than usual. If anything ought to compel our attention to God's voice, if anything ought to make us feel his rod, it is the fact that it is not the rod that smites us, but God himself that uses the rod. Spurgeon ends his verse-by-verse -verse exposition on a very sobering note. He admits that verse 6 rattled him at first. Cholera was simply the means that God chose to use, the instrument by which to sound his voice among the people. Likewise, COVID-19 is an instrument of God, 
a trumpet blast that is meant to awaken both believer and unbeliever alike. For the believer, it is a disciplinary trumpet, a reminder that this life soon shall pass, and only what is done for Christ shall last. For the unbeliever, it is a threatening trumpet, a warning to repent before a greater judgment comes. I will leave the closing remarks to Spurgeon himself and will not add any additional comments as they would only serve to diminish the power of his words. These are Spurgeon's concluding remarks. My dear hearers, I will speak as God's mouth to you as the Holy Spirit shall enable me. Is not the Lord speaking to all of us, both saints and sinners, and warning us to be agreed with him? O you who are as blood-bought people, believers in Jesus, is there any sin that has parted you from communion with Christ? Have you fallen into anything which has provoked the Spirit, so that his comforts are withdrawn? If so, by deep humility and earnest prayer, flee to the foot of the cross of the Lord Jesus, and pray, Return, O heavenly dove! Return, sweet messenger of rest! I hate the sins that made you mourn and drove you from my breast. And for those of you who are not his people, can you bear to be a disagreement with God? How can he walk with you? You ask his protection, but how can you expect it if you are not agreed with him? If two men walk together, there must be a place where they meet each other. Do you know where that is? It is at the cross. Sinner, if you trust in Jesus, God will meet you there. That is the place where true at-one-ment is made between God and sinners. If you go to Jesus in repentance, saying, Have mercy upon my iniquity, wash me in your blood, you shall be agreed with God, and then you may look forward to living or dying with equal delight. For if we live, we shall walk with God here on earth, and if we die, we shall walk with God above. Brethren, while the lion roars, should we not remove any evil which may have caused his anger to burn? Christian, search yourself now and purge out the old leaven. The head of the Jewish household, when the feast of unleavened bread drew near, not only put away the loaves of bread ordinarily used in the household, but he also took a candle and searched every part of the house, lest there should be even a crumb of leaven anywhere. He cleansed it all out. Likewise, Christian, as this is God's visitation, ask for the candle of the Holy Spirit to discover any little sin. Let any little self-indulgence into which we have fallen be conscientiously given up, and for the sake of that dear Savior who denied himself every comfort for us, let us take up our cross and follow him, determined that if the lion shall roar, it shall not be because of any prey in us. And, O oh, sinner, against whom God has been roaring, do you not remember his own words? Beware, you that forget God, lest I tear you in pieces and there be none to deliver you. Who can remove the iniquity which provokes the Lord to jealousy except the dying Savior, the Lord Jesus? He has put away sin by bearing it in his own body, and if you trust him, there shall be no sin in you to provoke God. Moreover, the Lord our God speaks to us by his providence and says, Submit yourself this day to God's design. The great fowler has spread the net. He will not take away that net until he has caught the bird. Be caught in it. Fly not from your God. If he puts out even an angry hand, fly into it. There is no shelter from an angry God 
but in the pierced hand of his dear son. When vengeance would strike a heavy blow, the closer you can get to it, the less will it wound you. Get close to God in Christ, cling to him, and he will not destroy you. Fly to Jesus, sinner fly. Be taken in God's net. Say to God, what would you have me to do? Would you have me to be yours? Here I am, Lord. Before you take me in the nets of death, take me in the nets of grace. Before the snares of hell prevent me, let the blessed snare of your eternal love sweetly entangle me. I am yours. Do as you will. Be awake, Christian, and be aware of God's design, for the trumpet is sounding, and when the trumpet sounds, Christian must not slumber. Let the presence of God infuse you into a more than ordinary courage and zeal. My brethren, I charge you, as you love Jesus, as you know the value of your own soul, now, if never before, be in earnest for the salvation of the sons of men. Men are always dying. Time, like a mighty rushing stream, is always bearing them away. But now they are hurried down the torrent in increasing numbers. If you and I do not exert ourselves to teach them the gospel, upon our heads must be their blood. We know that it is God's work to save, but he works by instruments, and we have his own solemn word for it. If the watchman fails to warn them, they shall perish, but their blood will I require at the watchman's hands." Are there no houses in your neighborhood where Jesus is unknown? Is there no court, no lane, no alley near to where you reside, without God and without Christ? Have you no friends who are unconverted? Have you no acquaintances unsaved? It is a great mercy when the bell tolls if we can say of those who die, I did all I could to save them from ruin. As for myself, I know that there are some of you here who, if you be lost, are not lost for lack of warning, nor for lack of teaching. I have set before you life and death. I have threatened you in God's name, and I have directed you to the precious blood of Jesus. Years ago there seemed to be some hope about you, but it was like the morning cloud and the early dew, for you are still unsaved. When I heard the other day that Mrs. So-and-so was dead, and that she died of cholera, I could not lament, for she was one who had long feared God. When they told me that a worthy young man had fallen, I was sorrowful to have lost such a good student from the college, but I was thankful that one who had served his God so well in his youth had gone to his rest. But if I heard of the death of some of you, it would cause me unmingled grief and fear. Some of you have been sitting here for years who will, I fear, go out of this church and this world to destruction. You know you will, unless you are changed. If you die as you now are, you have nothing to expect but a fearful judgment and a fiery indignation. Some of you know well the result of sin, and yet you choose it. Your consciences prick you often, and yet you run against them. You have been alarmed and so awakened that it seems impossible that you can continue as you are. But alas, you will not turn, and your end is coming. My hearer, it is terrible to think of your doom. God has warned you that he will meet you in another world, and when he does, you will not be able to say that he did not speak openly and honestly with you during your time in this world. You will be speechless, because the trumpet was sounded, and you did not heed the warning. God was in the city, but you would not hear him. Death spoke as his minister, but you plugged your ears because you were resolved to die, and your heart was set on mischief. 
you scorned eternal life and chose destruction for the sake of a few worthless pleasures or a deceitful darling lust which will treacherously stab you through your heart you let jesus go and heaven go and all this for a moment's pleasure ah oh, my hearer you shall have much to answer for i pray that you will not venture into eternal wrath give these words some consideration i beg you and as you consider them may the holy spirit fasten them as nails in a sure place and may you seek the lord while he may be found and call upon him while he is near for this is his word to you as i live says the lord god i have no pleasure in the death of the wicked but that the wicked would turn from his way and live amen may the lord bless these words to your soul breck we want to thank you for being here and just uh, instructing us uh, bringing some things to our mind that can be helpful for us to answer those hard questions during this time and to know not only what god's role is in all of this but what our role needs to be as well so thank you now if you as a listener want to learn more about cornerstone baptist church you can find us online at cornerstonewiley.org you can follow us on Twitter or Instagram at CBC Wiley. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash cornerstone Wiley. And you can also subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or Google Play in order to stay up to date on all the new content. Thank you so much for listening.